few of you. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word there with you, I invite you to go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, uh, continuing to make our way through uh, the book of Romans, line by line, precept upon precept, as uh, the old folks would say. So uh, Romans chapter 1 tonight, we're going to continue exploring uh, Paul's beginning portion of this letter. This is where he begins to uh, dive into the section on theology tonight. So uh, think of 118 all the way to the end of chapter 11 will functionally be uh, that block of Romans that is focused primarily on Paul's theology. So if you're there and you found your place, invite you to stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. We're going to consider tonight 14 verses. So for the sake of our launching into this text tonight, we're just going to consider verses 18 and 19 for our reading tonight. So this is God's word to us. Let's draw our attention to it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what they what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. This is God's word to us, and as we prepare for this section, let's ask him to prepare our hearts to hear it all. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you tonight, and as we begin to make our way through what is arguably one of the more famous portions of uh, theology in all of the New Testament. We ask that if we've been acquainted with it before, that our eyes and ears and hearts would be open to it again, afresh and anew. And if this is our first time through it, Father, that we would listen carefully to your word and what, it, how, what and how it instructs us to live. Father, this text tonight makes it clear that all of humanity sits condemned. So I ask that you would allow this text tonight, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to lay heavy on us as we understand the implications of that for how we interact with the people around us. And Father, we're also aware tonight that we're not the only people who will be gathering together to worship you. Pray for our friends at Graceway Baptist Church. Think of our friends uh, at Ridgecrest. We ask that you would increase their ministry, their reach, their gospel influence. We know that we don't own the corner market. We don't have or are somehow better than other churches in this city. We are thankful for the work, though, that you are doing here. And we ask that you would continue to do it. Help us to reach many uh, college students for your glory and their and our good. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight's title is pretty ominous, Declared Legally Dead. When we think of legal action, and if I were to ask you what comes to mind when we think of the most ominous legal team or legal group, we would probably be right to think of the Supreme Court as Western American Christians. This group of justices ultimately makes decisions that affect the country as a whole. 
What's interesting about this particular group of justices, these judges, in concert together, have helped our country and hurt our country, have supported our country, allowed it to, and they've erred rightly in the cause of justice, and they've also ruled poorly in the cause of justice. We think of how they've helped maintain the rights of many citizens. We think of the landmark case Brown v. Board of Education that desegregated schools in 1954, or we could think of Gideon versus Rain B. Wainwright, which I'm sure all of you know exactly what that case was about in 1963 that guarantees that you, as a defendant, are worthy of legal representation even if you can't afford one. Or we might think of Miranda v. Arizona and the case that decided that you... Uh, must be read your rights if you're ever picked up. Some of you are like, this is all good information. I had no idea that I had this at my disposal. One of my favorite landmark cases in the Supreme Court is Tinker versus Des Moines, which protects students' rights to their First Amendment right of free speech at school, that you can't be silenced. As long as you're not disrupting what's going on in the educational period, you have the right of free speech as a student. So if you remember, I say if you remember, if you know of this case, there was basically a group of students who were supporting uh, the anti-war effort uh, of Vietnam, and they had worn black uh, armbands. And basically what the Supreme Court set down as precedent is that you as a student have a right to free speech as long as you're not disrupting what's going on in the educational environment, which is a good thing for Christians to be reminded of as they seek to pray, read their Bible, and share Christ on their campuses, whether that's in high school or college, that you are protected. But alas, the Supreme Court is not a perfect institution. We know this because it has erred in its decision. A perfect example of this would be uh, in 1857. We think of Dred Scott versus Sanford, which declared that African Americans were property and had no rights. Yes, the Supreme Court had to overturn that. We could think of Roe v. Wade in 1973 also, which legalized abortion and declared that infants in the womb are not protected in this country. The reason why I say all of this, the reason why I use the Supreme Court is because we're going to use some legal terms tonight, and I want to set out at the outset that the highest court in this land gets it right and gets it wrong and we could debate the merits of all of the cases that they have picked up and they will pick up but when it comes to God as judge if we think back to Sunday we know that he judges rightly and perfectly and so we set that as the stage for the illustration to contrast a a panel of jurists who get it right and get it wrong versus a judge who never gets it wrong, who is perfectly right in all of his judgments. And so tonight, in a different way of maybe presenting this text to you, I want to give you the quote-unquote legal argument for your spiritual death tonight. So beginning in verse 18 and verse 19, Paul, as 
the mouthpiece writing under the inspiration of God makes the opening statement. And here's his opening statement. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Paul begins with an opening statement declaring that all of humanity sits under the collective wrath of God. And the reason that they sit under the collective wrath of God, he argues, is because all of humanity has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. What truth is that? Well, Paul goes on in verse 19 to say, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, Paul's opening statement, when he begins to make the argument that all of humanity is spiritually dead, legally declared dead, is the fact that they know the truth about God, yet they suppress it. That there is no inescapable way, though they will try, and as this passage begins to unfold in front of us, it is made increasingly clear that humanity will try to suppress the truth about who God is. But the reason why, you think of all of those great courtroom scenes from movies as attorneys begin to press into their case, a strong opening statement. Paul is saying, you and I and all of humanity stand spiritually condemned under the wrath of God because we suppress the truth about who God is. We know who God is, yet we suppress it. This suppression is what sets up the case for God's wrath to be revealed from heaven. Doug Moo is helpful here. He writes, God's reaction to sin is not the anger of an emotional person. We're tempted a lot of times to begin to put human emotions onto a holy God when we read this passage and go, God is a moral monster who is acting like a spoiled child because he's not getting what he wants. Doug Moo is helpful because he says, God's reaction to sin is not the anger of an emotional person. It is the necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. If God, Alistair Begg argues, were complacent about sin, there would be no need for his wrath-bearing sacrifice. In spite of our predicament, he argues, but because God is holy and because he does take sin seriously, his wrath sits poised to be executed on humanity. Now, let's be clear here. Paul is not saying that our condemnation is not for our failure to know God completely. So some people say, well, how can we know God completely? There's no way for us to know completely. That's not what Paul is arguing here. Paul is arguing that our failure is to recognize God at all. To even begin to recognize him as creator, as judge, as God. This is the problem of living in a post-truth era, a post-modern era of time. We deny what is clearly manifested to us. And I would ask you tonight, as you begin to see this argument unfolding, 
are you aware of the charges that are laid against you? Christian, are you reminded tonight of the fact that these charges, before you trusted in Christ, were laid against you? That everyone sits under this condemned. And for the non-Christian in the room, this is what God holds against you. This is what he brings his wrath against you. Some of you may be thinking, I'm too bad to be saved. I've done too much. You don't understand. It is not necessarily the compiled works of your sinfulness. It's your outright defiance that he even exists that brings God's condemnation to you. This is important for us to understand. The ultimate and first and foremost sin that God holds against us, the first sin that we ever commit, is to deny his existence. That's at the root cause of the human heart. And Christian, tonight, do you live under the regular reminder that this is what has happened for you, that your these charges have been erased from your account, not because of who you are and not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. I think a lot of times we're tempted to not continually put in front of us that we at one point stood condemned before a holy God. I think this is why our zeal for sharing the gospel dwindles after a high of coming to know Christ. Because we become complacent. We forget about the courtroom scene. We forget about the defendant or the defense that comes to our behalf. We forget about the person who stands in to take the brunt of these charges. So we have Paul's opening statement. But like a good attorney, if you will, and I understand Paul's not... Physically an attorney as he's arguing here. So you don't have to catch me tonight. And you know, you know, Paul wasn't an attorney. Yes, I'm aware Paul's not an attorney. He didn't hang a shingle out. Paul, attorney at law. Going, let me argue your cases. But here he moves from an opening statement to the evidence for why we stand condemned. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Paul says, you want the evidence for why we know that you've denied the existence of God? Well, let's just lay it out here. Well, to begin with, God has clearly manifested himself to all of humanity. This, in theological terms, if you remember from when we started our uh, Sunday series talking about why we believe what we believe, this is the primary case for general revelation, that God has revealed himself to all of humanity generally they should be able to at least acknowledge that there is a creator god by just looking around i've often made the case that general revelation is 
uh, made aware as you drive down Highway 65 in the middle of fall to Branson. You drive down that road and there's picturesque leaves and different colors and it's beautiful and the rolling hills. And as you're traveling and making your way through the Ozarks, there is general revelation in front of you. Because to look at that is to look and inside of the human heart is the inescapable truth that someone had to create this. It didn't just pop up out of nowhere. I've often made the case that I think the Ozarks, outside of where I grew up and what I consider some of the most beautiful parts of the country, is right here. Going hiking through the Ozarks is one concert of general revelation. We were reminded that the Psalms say that if humans continually denied the existence of God, that the earth would cry out its existence. That I have been created by God. I have been created by God. And I think when you go hiking through the Ozarks, all of the woods, all of the streams, all of the leaves, all of the animals are screaming in one beautiful chorus. God is here. As Francis Schaeffer says, he's here and he is not silent. All one has to do is travel this world to see his handiwork. Think of standing on the beaches in Spain when we went to to Barcelona, and there it is, again, crying out. We, uh, when we travel to see Jessica's parents, we stop along the shores of Lake Michigan, and there again, God is crying out, I'm here, and I'm not silent. All of this general revelation is pointing humans to the fact and the longing of their heart is to know who is this one that created the world. But what is humanity's response? Standing condemned? It's denied that it is actually God who is creating and is in operation. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They were not thankful, but became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This, as some theologians have argued, are the noetic results of the fall, the effects on the mind of the fall, that the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden immediately brings in a warped view of thinking. And it's evident here in this text that Their minds became futile and their hearts were darkened. And this is what is the ultimate evidence for this. Paul is really making this clear and punchy, if you will. In verse 22, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Humans left to their own device profess their own wisdom as being supreme. And in doing so, exalt humanity over God and become fools. Think about the disastrous results of the postmodern way of thinking that we now find ourselves in. That is claimed to be the height of all intelligence. The height of all human intelligence comes back to resonate with you. And these are the arguments you're probably hearing from your friends, 
on your campuses, uh, from your professors, uh, any of you who've taken any sort of philosophy class, that realistically no one can know truth. That there is no such thing as an absolute truth. That there is no such way of knowing anything, really. Do you see what happens when humanity takes their own wisdom and runs the end game all the way out? They become fools. There is no way to know true truth. There are no absolutes any longer. It is not right and wrong to make moral decisions because what your truth is to you may be another person's untruth. How many more times are we going to have to be told foolishly, go ahead, speak your truth? The problem with that is when there is no settled truth, what ends up happening is verse 23. They've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Here's what happens. When we begin to exalt human wisdom that is not rooted in the truthfulness of God, and we begin to exalt our own understanding above God's settled and absolute truth, what happens to God is he is no longer God. He becomes just like us. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. None of us are worth worshiping. That is what ultimately upends the unbeliever. For you tonight, you may be sitting here and you go, I am not a Christian. And I find this to be difficult to follow Christ because all my metrics are that God is just kind of like us. Well, it would be obvious at least to myself and to others, why you would find that to be so distasteful. Because I'm going to agree with you. If God is like us, we are to be pitied for gathering here to worship him. If God is like you, I can guarantee you I'm out. I spent enough time with you to know I would never worship you. And if you're a visitor, all I have to do is go to lunch with you to know that I wouldn't worship you. And I hope you would know that you wouldn't worship me. Churches get themselves into all kinds of trouble. Not only by devaluing God, but by exalting man. Be careful the expectations that you set for your pastors to be God. They will always fail you. I will always fail you. careful this is the evidence that he brings and this is ultimately what humanity has done with god any anyone visiting i, I know s several of uh, my small group members um, have attended otc and missouri state and liberal institutions here in the city and i have friends that attend liberal institutions liberal arts education institutions all over the world and consistently, the most blasphemous classes that they sit in are not philosophy or biology. They're in their religion departments, where professors who do not know Christ argue that the Bible is just another book. And that God is not really, if he is anything like this book, he is not worthy to be worshipped. And we've got to be on guard that we don't begin to allow the subtle voice.
choices of secularism and worldly philosophies to infiltrate our understanding of the scriptures. John Calvin famously said, the pastor must have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for driving away wolves. And this is how I'm going to drive out the wolf tonight. Any person who tells you that God is like you doesn't understand God and isn't an actual Christ follower. You say, that's pretty strong, David. You're not supposed to judge people. You're right, but truth always has a way of driving away error. And the truth of God's word always drives away error. I would ask you tonight, in subtle ways, are you guilty of robbing God of glory that belongs only to him, though? Christian, you can be guilty of this. You begin to take credit for things that you have no right to take credit for. You begin to boast in your accomplishments and your works and all of the things that you do when ultimately you have no right to make those claims and you're robbing God of his glory. And what are some of the ways that you might be tempted tonight to treat God like he is a man instead of treating him like he is God? Think about the different attributes that we study and the different ways that we look and understand him to be God. Are we guilty at times? I think sometimes we are, especially in the area of when we talk about God's love. We're very guilty of making him more like a boyfriend, more like a girlfriend than we are the holy, almighty God of the universe who we should enter into his presence with fear and trembling. So, tonight, do you need to identify some of those areas? Well, let's look then. We've seen the opening statement. Here is... Paul's evidence that we have suppressed the truth about God. And then I'm going to argue that the rest of 24 through 32 is God's ultimate verdict delivered through the Apostle Paul. This is the end result of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Therefore, verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to, those, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only, to, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. This is a pretty strong verdict. What is the result of this suppressing of the truth of God? Well, essentially, God turns them over to the consequences of their choices. Who's them? Who does God turn over to these choices? All of humanity. 
The results are a disaster for humanity. The results of suppressing God is they are turned over to the love of sin in their actions and in their mind. We could call this a laundry list of sin. And our natural tendency as Christians sometimes, I want to be very clear when I say this, can be to emphasize the fact that homosexuality is described in detail in this passage. And we use this passage to call out as a New Testament example that Jesus does in fact carry over the prohibition from the Old Testament in regards to homoerotic behavior into the New Testament. But we need to also remember that after this action is a laundry list of sins that everyone in this room has committed, at least one. And if you're like, think that you can kind of wiggle your way out of it, I love what Paul says in verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You may be able to wiggle and finagle your way out of this list. I don't think you can, but you can try. But the Apostle Paul lays the hammer down at the end and says, even if you tried to wiggle your way out and say, I've never committed these, you have approved of those who practice them. The point of the verdict is not, hear this tonight, is not to show that homosexuality is the chief among sins. Rather, the verdict is to show that the natural consequences of our innate denial of God is a life littered and consumed by sin. This is where everyone stands condemned. And probably the clearest way this is manifested is the Apostle Paul makes the argument that those who suppress the truth about God are actually haters of God. So all of humanity prior to conversion hates God. In their suppression of him, they give evidence to their hatred of him. Some of you were converted early in life. And so the hatred that you displayed towards God was manifested in your sinful actions prior to your conversion. Some of you were saved later in life from a life of literally hating the idea of the existence of the God of the scriptures. In light of all of these facts tonight, we need someone to stand in and take the punishment that we deserve. That is what this text is telling us. That someone must bear the penalty that we bring on ourselves. And if you are under the misguided notion that it is going to get better soon in the book of Romans, read ahead. It does not. Next few chapters will be an outpouring of where we stand prior to our conversion. But week in and week out, I'm going to take you back to this settled truth. The only way that we can escape the punishment that we deserve is that someone who lives differently than we do, who is born differently than we are born, stands and takes our place. And the only person who can do that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. That must mean tonight, for those of us who are sitting in the room, 
that we have placed our faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. So tonight, if you have never done this, your greatest need is not to try and clean up this laundry list. Because friend, in and of yourself, you'll never be able to do it. I love Conrad Boyue here. Your disease, the thing you need to be cleaned up from, is not on the outside. It's not your outward actions. The disease is on the inside. Someone has to come in and make you clean. The only person who can do that is Jesus Christ. That is our greatest need. And then for the Christ follower in the room, your greatest need is to continually, day by day, remind yourself of your need for Christ. Perhaps the reason why we're not so zealous anymore about Jesus is we've forgotten what he's done for us. We've forgotten what our legal status was in front of him. We forgot that we were declared legally dead, that we stand condemned to die. Tonight, Two options sit in front of us. One for the non-Christian, put your faith in Christ alone. And for the Christian, celebrate what you've been saved from. Let's pray together.